This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey guys, I am here with Chad and Simon from the Doomsday Duplicator and LD Decode projects. Did I get those right? Yeah, you got it. Absolutely. So I have been very excited about this project ever since Ash Evans posted about it on Twitter. Um, and I've been wanting to get you guys on for an interview, uh, mostly to share the project with the world, but also because I'm really curious myself. <laughs> um, so could you give uh, just a very short overview of what the project is, and then we'll kind of dig in deeper. Yeah, well, I can kind of kick off with that since... Uh... The duplicator is right at the front end of things. I mean, we've been working on a project for a couple of years now to preserve the, the BBC Doomsday system from 1986. Mm -hmm. And a core part of that, of course, is laser disks that have um, some real strange information. I mean, they, they basically decided to do some really odd things with the system and put data on the disks and do all sorts of experimental things to begin with. So um, one of the problems we had was actually getting the laser disk and getting all the information off of it. And whilst we were doing that, we came across Chad's project, uh, the LD Co project. And I looked into that, and my initial thoughts on it was it was pretty blimmin' complicated, basically. <laughs> <laughs> but it turns out that complexity has a purpose in, the, in this one. It is quite a complicated problem. Mm -hmm. And so the, the, the issue that I saw with that was that the quality of the captures that, that Chad was able to get were, were fairly... They were okay, but they weren't good enough for preservation. Mm -hmm. So I set about building a, a board called the Doomsday Duplicator, this, this little thing here. And the idea of this basically is you, you adjust a, a laser display, you tap the RF directly, and you pull the image from the laser. Well, you pull the signals from the laser in the, in the laser display immediately, as, far, as early as possible in the player. Mm -hmm. And that way you avoid all the 30, 40-year-old electronics that are going on in mm -hmm. there and, and get the very best capture possible. And then once you have that, then uh, that then gets passed over to Chad's bit to be turned back mm -hmm. into uh, pictures again. Yeah, basically, I take 1976 technology, the year I was born, and I turn it into a video, hmm. slowly, because <laughs> it's so far from optimal right now, because I've been working on it for years on and off, and nobody had really worked on the actual software with me, so it was one of those uncom incomprehensible things that when I went back to it, when we had the higher bitrate captures, because my video capture card that I use could only do 28 million samples and this can do 40 or even more but it doesn't it's not supported just use 40 don't tell <laughs> people it does 75 we'll be getting massive captures <laughs> <laughs> so could you talk a little the bit about are only what, um, for 60 people uh, uh, could you talk about the original project uh goal so when you say the the britain's doomsday doomsday system from 1986 do you are you referring to like um their their automatic warning systems <laughs> well, actually, the, the, the expression <laughs> the expression "doomsday" is actually old English. The, the "dooms" means day of uh, means judgment. 
So Doomsday is ju- Day of Judgment. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is back in um, in 1066, there was an invasion in the in the UK when the French came over and basically kicked the merry hell out of the English and took over for a while, mm-hmm. which uh, happens all throughout British history. And um, one of the things that the king decided to do in 1086 was to go around the entire country and write a book that contained the the copies of how much land everyone had and basically how much tax they owed him. Okay. And everyone was convinced this was going to be the end of the world, and they basically called it. The, it was the, the day of judgment. You know, when 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 the book was finished, everyone would get taxed, and that would be the end of everything. And the, and the name kind of stuck. Mm-hmm. But it became one of the most important historical records that we have of that century, um, and the book still exists today. And in 1984, I think it was, the BBC decided to mark the 900th anniversary of Doomsday. They would make a new one, and the way they did it is by pretty much the first example of crowdsourcing they went out to almost all the schools in the uk and i think there were there were tens of thousands of people involved and collected photographs videos maps um school kids got to write articles and they basically produced two laser discs one laser disc had the community it was called the community disc which had the the crowdsourcing stuff on it and the other was called the National Disc, and that had the, the professionally produced, if you like. It even contained the census data for, for 1981 on it as well. So you could actually look up all sorts of data and all sorts of things. But unlike the original Doomsday book, which lasted a good 900 years, this one hardly made it for a decade before <laughs> the players started breaking. And, you know, it, it, it was quite a custom piece of technology, which was, you know, it's arguable that it was necessary. But they managed to squeeze, I think it was 360 megas of data on each side of the disk, which contained all the databases and everything. But the trouble with that is that you need a very specific Laserdisc player to be able to play that. Mm-hmm. And the trouble now is that all those Laserdisc players are either broken or gone. And the discs are starting to rot, which is something I'm sure Chad can tell you quite a lot about disc rot. And uh, it's yeah. becoming more and more difficult to actually, you know, just to access that data. And a lot of that stuff was actually written by people about my age at school, and they've they've never seen the articles they've written. So the idea behind the Dooms uh, behind the the Doomsday 86 project was to basically n- not emulate the system, but recreate the system in its original form. And that was one of the core goals that led me to actually look into how do I make a Laserdisc play without a Laserdisc. And that was uh, how we came up with the, the Doomsday Duplicator concept, because I wanted to have a, a digital version of the Laserdisc that would act just like the original. That is so cool. Yeah, I mean, if you look at all the stuff Simon's done, he basically makes Cyborg BBC Micros with like the <laughs> core of the system's intact, but it's got all these modern bits. Man, that, that's yeah. you know when you said uh, when you first said like the 1986 uh, Doomsday Project, uh, my my crazy brain went straight to Doctor Strangelove, and just was like, <laughs> is this some kind of like uh, video of uh, you know the automatic missile warning system or something? I just I immediately went to uh, to craziness, but uh, what it actually is is way cooler. So <laughs> it's it's a very important historical record. I mean that that was the reason behind wanting to. To preserve it in the first place and that there have been other preservation efforts towards it but most of them have focused on remastering the original video which which only the bbc has access to mm-hmm. but they haven't really looked at preserving the system 
and it's preserving the system that's it's a slightly different view then you actually need a copy of the laser disc the the original video is not the same thing mm-hmm. you you need that the whole thing you know so that you can take that laser disc and insert it in a virtual player and play it just like it was the real thing and that's that's really the aim because i mean a, a lot of retro enthusiasts i'm sure will tell you that the it, it's one thing to play on an emulator it's another thing to get the real machine in front of you and, mm-hmm. and play on the actual thing itself oh, and yeah. doomsday's a lot like that but yeah. um I mean, the entire, the entire reason my website even exists is because, sure, you could get a Raspberry Pi and load the stuff up and, and emulate it pretty darn good, but it's never going to be exactly the same, and there's an importance of that. And in my opinion, um, it, it, it's equally as important to preserve the, the weird and cool parts of history like that as it is to preserve a Super Nintendo or something. So mm-hmm, that, yeah. I'm glad that uh, somebody's taking the efforts to do that. Well, the good news yeah. is, is it seems to have a lot of um, a lot of interest from guys that like all the laserdisc games as well. So we we have quite a few of the main guys in the background now helping us out actually. Cool. And of course, you know, they have different aims in the, in the preservation that they want. But mm-hmm. but really, you you can't emulate uh, Dragon's Lair, for example, if you don't have the Dragon's Lair laserdisc. And it's been there's been no way of digitizing that. I mean, we're now at a stage where Chad and I are able to email each other copies of Laserdiscs, which is just fantastic. I mean, we've taken a 1970s digi- uh, analog technology mm-hmm. and pushed it into the digital universe so that we can start to collaborate and, and work on it as an open project. So we, we Yeah, yesterday have... I sent him this disc, mm-hmm. both sides of it. <laughs> and this is one of the Pioneer Test Discs, and... Eventually, one of our ideas on the software side is to stitch multiple copies of one disk together so that when there's rot or you want to just increase the quality, you could do that in software. You can take the best bits of both or merge them where they both work. That's because that's absolutely most incredible. laser discs were well made, and a lot of them are in the same quality they were when they were made. Mm-hmm. Uh, but unfortunately, the Domestay discs were made by. Philips in the UK, which is arguably the worst Laserdisc plant. (laughs) They could not even make CDs right back then. (laughs) (laughs) They had no business making Laserdiscs in that factory at that point. Yeah, there's an interesting effect of the the glue that they used to to put the substrates together. I mean, a Laserdisc is effectively several layers of plastic with some Mm -hmm. aluminium in between. Mm-hmm. And what's really happening is uh, over time the the glue is breaking down and it turns alkaline, I believe, and then eats its way straight through the actual disc itself and destroys the information. And that's what a lot of the the bit rot is that we're seeing with the discs. Oh wow! Yeah, this is one of the early PDOEK discs. I don't know if you can really see the bronzing, but hmm. this is a copy I got from uh, eBay of Star Trek II from the UK. They just could not make discs. <laughs> yeah, so we, we we have a bit of a ticking time bomb issue. Is, is the thing. I mean, yeah, there's the two the two sides of it are kind of separate because the the time constraint is getting the captures. You know, we we need to get good captures as fast as possible because every day the discs are getting worse and worse. Mm-hmm. But the nice thing is, is that with this process, once we actually have a really good capture, you can then decode and decode and decode and decode. Unlike the original discs, they don't get damaged, that they don't wear out. So. The, the idea that we have at the moment, I mean, a lot of what Chad and I are talking about is, you know, initially just using the LD Decode project as a proof of concept to make sure that the, the captures are good. 
because uh, there's a lot of clever tricks that Chad does uh, in the, the looking at the images and working out whether they're what the signal to noise ratios are and how mm -hmm. good the actual capture is itself. Mm -hmm. And we're even now starting to measure different players because there's, there's a lot of um, very unscientific information out there about which laser disc players are good and which are bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, people think that certain things are good and certain things are bad, and there are theories about it. But what we're actually doing now is is starting to get a sort of scientific angle on it and look at the mass involved and see you know does a muse player do better than a normal player is a um, gas laser player better than a infrared laser player we can actually now see from the ld decode project signal to noise coming out of it all sorts of information about the picture itself and actually mm -hmm. see how well that player is performing and capture the same disc on two different players and compare them side by side so we can actually work out now what the best capture environment is and that's something we're working on right now to capture that data back again so that's uh, that was going to be one of my my top questions for you because I I started in this game in the early two thousands when I had a few concert bootlegs on VHS tapes. Uh, obviously, this is pre YouTube because it would be useless now. But um, mm -hmm. I, I really <laughs> wanted to make sure I got that digital so that I could continue to share that with people because there are some people that had never gotten to see their favorite bands. Some people couldn't uh, for whatever reason. Uh, and I had gone through and done as much research as, you know, like a 20-year-old kid could possibly do. I, I went through and uh, found SVHS players, um, time-based correctors, uh, which, uh, which capture cards had macrovision protection because the ones that do very often detect uh, tape noise as macrovision, making it, you know, impossible because now you just have a big horizontal line across your screen. Uh, and it, it really fascinated me to the point of, you know, which was the best player? How close to the player could I get it? I used, like, um, RCA mail-to-mail -mail dongles and plugged it directly into the time-based corrector with, like, some books underneath to make sure it wasn't putting pressure just so I wouldn't be sending composite or S-video all the way down a cable. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I always wondered how far you could go with laser discs. And, um, you know, there are still some laser discs that, you know, obviously, like the project you're working on, but even some movies where that exact cut is unavailable elsewhere and while yeah. yes they have been digitized not most of the time it's not as as good as as one would expect um so when i discovered your project that was one of the many reasons i got excited but uh, i guess could we just break down from the start how this process would work for somebody who wants to try their own um so first you would have to acquire uh, the device, which we'll we'll get mm -hmm. to the details on that later. Let's just skip to that part. Somebody has one of these devices. So how mm -hmm. do you choose a laser disc player that can be used with this? Well, I think the the, the main thing is uh, the availability of service manuals for the player. That's mm -hmm. the really important part. If you if you don't have a, an available service manual, it's very difficult to actually work out how to connect to that player. But a lot of players quite handily have a a uh, test header inside them. And on that test header for the engineers that would have been servicing them is, is actually the RF output. So, and that RF out tends to be quite close to the laser. So you, you have the mm -hmm. laser, and then under the laser you have a, a MOSFET preamp, which is quite high quality. And then it goes to, through a ribbon cable to a board, which then amps it a little bit more. And then you have the RF out, and that's the ideal player. So it then comes down to what formats you want. I mean, I'm, I'm a little bit limited because I used the very best video format in the universe called PAL. Uh, <laughs> unlike, unlike everyone else who seems to be more into NTSC, I've never quite worked out why. But the, the, the Doomsday system is PAL only. So 
one of the constraints that I have is finding a laser disc player that can play those discs. And the other issue is is that you then want a very well calibrated laser disc player. I mean, if you think about what's happening in 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 the capture mechanism, we're reading the laser, but the laser disc player itself is still responsible for spinning the disc and tracking that 14 kilometer spiral around the disc mm -hmm. as it goes through. And the more the head shifts from side to side, the more crosstalk you'll get in the in the capture and that comes through as noise of course in the in the snr so it's the problem with calibrating is that you can no longer get your hands on pal calibration discs so it's impossible to calibrate a pal only player so the only real choice if you want to do the doomsday side of things is to find a pal and ntsc combined player calibrate it using the ntsc disc which you can still actually get from pioneer and and then use that to do the capture so i mean there's there's that kind of angle and and we're not actually that sure at the moment what the best player is. Um, I, I'm using Pioneer uh, 4300Ds, which are PAL and NTSC. I think Chad has a 2800 Pioneer. Mm -hmm. We've got a guy now in Australia who's the only person uh, involved in the, in the capturing at the moment. He's got a Muse X9 player. That's, um, and those players have a specific type of laser that has a slight narrower beam in it. So mm -hmm. it should give less crosstalk. And we're seeing very good results from that. The problem with those is that they start at about $2,500 on eBay. So it, it, it's kind of a little bit out of reach. Mm -hmm. But it, it's really... And then really... there's a player above that that's many, many thousands. And when they break, there's almost no fixing them. Yeah, oh. exactly. But the interesting thing is, is, it is you can get a little too focused when it comes to the analog universe of looking at all these different figures, because really the, the differences we're seeing between the sort of middle, middle of the road, if you like, industrial players like the Pioneer 4300 that I'm using and the Muse, the, the, the difference isn't really that great. I mean, there's a little bit of an improvement, but it really is in the noise floor of the player. I mean, you, you're just looking at how well you can measure the noise more than anything else. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's debatable that you're going to get that much better results by using exponentially more expensive players. I mean, usually the best player is the player that you can get your hands on. Yep. And if, if you can find yeah. the player and modify it and you have a service manual for it and you can calibrate it, that's the very best, best player to use. And what we hope to be able to do pretty shortly is to be able to take captures from different um, players, combine them, as Chad says, to, to make even better images, but also compare them against each other to see which captures best. And we may actually find that some players do better at the start of the disc and then some do better at the end of the disc and, you know, all sorts of crazy stuff. But mm -hmm. really yeah. just getting your hands on a player and modifying it, putting that RF tap in it, that's, that's really the first step. Because all you need to then do is connect that up to the Doomsday Duplicator board, which is designed to take that input. And then you set the gain according to the um, the service manual tells you that the the RF should be yay big. There's a switch on the on the duplicator board. You switch that, and then you load on all the Linux software that does the capturing. You just hit a button basically, and it will it will generate you an image. It's the the hardware is the complicated part of that, but the hardware is done. Hmm. The 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 real difficult thing now, and that we're looking to sort of like move forward in the future, is the decoding side of that. Mm -hmm. We can already now successfully capture discs, and we know that those images are good. So it, it's it's actually pretty simple to get going with a capture setup if you have a basic knowledge of electronics. So just to stick with hardware for one more second, and then I, I definitely want to move on to the the software side of things. So what you just touched upon is something that is it mimics exactly what it's like in the video game world, where if you're using analog uh, products that are designed to be viewed on analog screens, 
Um, you could have 10, 10 different model video game consoles that you know output a little different that all look pretty much <laughs> the same, even on really high-end equipment like a Sony BVM calibrated CRT monitor. But as soon as you take that image and you digitize it to a flat screen, stuff that you normally would quite literally could not have seen on an analog monitor comes out. Yep. Um, and sometimes it's artifacts like uh, I'm sure you've heard the term jail bars. It's just those, uh, mm -hmm. you know, the vertical interference mm -hmm. that comes out. Sometimes that's really it takes away from the, the experience. Uh, it's so yeah. distracting that, you know, it, it, and sometimes, it, you know, it j just really bugs me. And then there's other things like when you zoom in on solid colors, sometimes they're not quite solid. You see a little, you know, a little bit of d distortion in there. And that, that to me, like I notice it because this is what I do, but uh, mm -hmm. I, I would never say that that takes away from the experience. So the whole point you just made about any, you know, once you have a laser disc player that's hooked up with this, that's the most important part as long as it gets past any of the major hurdles. So you don't have something yeah. with complete fuzz and, and anything else. Um, and do you guys have a list of players somewhere that have already been confirmed to have that service port so that you could solder this right in? At the, at the moment, I mean, from, from the Doomsday Project perspective, we have a reference player as the 4300 um, Pioneer because of the PAL NTSC. Mm -hmm. And the, the trouble with uh, so far with doing the testing is of course, laser displays are fairly expensive. And, you know, this is a not-for-profit, open-source, open-hardware on, on both sides. So it's there's not really an awful lot of money around to buy uh, tens of laser displays and test them all. Um, what we do have is an IRC channel now and also a Facebook group where all the different people that are now getting together their, their capture boards. I mean, some of these guys have got 20 players. I mean, they're, they're, they're insane. Uh, you know who I'm talking about, by the <laughs> way, if you're out there. But, I mean, you know, they're, they're now running through all these different players and confirming that it works. But really, the, the latest revision of the duplicator board is designed to work with pretty much any player. So providing you can get a good RF tap off of it, which is really just down to having the service manual, you can configure the, the capture um, gain on the front end of the, the, the duplicator. And that basically means you, you can capture from any laser displayer. It should, it should effectively work with anything. In things like calibrating the laser with an oscilloscope or uh, making sure the, the basic mechanics of it, any belts are tight and all those things, uh, are those things that would affect the capture, just basic you know, uh, laser yes. maintenance? Uh, absolutely, yeah. because you're, you're relying on the radial tracking ability of the, the player to be able to give you a good capture. If it drifts off track or starts to skip around, you'll get that in the capture. You, you see what the laser sees. I mean, that's yeah. the beauty of it, but it's also the problem with it as well. I mean, you if you don't have a good player, you're not going to get a good capture. It's as simple yeah, as that. Yeah, because the laser dot can stray between frames, and then you see the crosstalk. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. So are there, um, I guess, once the community kind of starts uh, posting their results and, and information is compiled, we could find out which laser disc players... Uh, have aged better, which ones maybe they haven't aged better, but it's very easy yep. to replace the parts inside of them, um, you know, stuff like that to, to help improve these captures. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all, the, all the Pioneer players from 95 on have pretty much the same stuff. Oh, good. So the 2800's part of that family, and the DVLs actually have the same spindle motor and the unfortunately the same laser pickup, because if they use the DVD pickup, we wouldn't be talking about Muse players anymore. We would all be using DVLs and nothing else. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there there is a thought in this though that it may actually be possible to to ground up, uh, modify players. 
So, I mean, you know, we've been chatting, I especially with the, with the technical side of things, talking about the possibilities to use a DVD laser, for example, and well, retrofit that into a laser displayer to give a much narrower laser beam. I mean, there's a lot of technical problems with that, but, you know, mm-hmm. technical problems are just things that can be solved if you've got enough people. Absolutely, and, uh, yeah. You, you can get around those issues. And then perhaps we can make even better captures. I mean, you can even take that all the way to its sort of like logical end of, of taking a disk and just scanning it with a microscope and then reverse engineering the decode straight from that rather than actually using a player at all. I mean, everything is possible, but there's yeah, a very the limited amount of time to get there with the capture stuff because these disks, they're right. not going to last that much longer. So we, we have to move, basically. And the, the best capture system is the one we have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a chicken and the egg type of thing where 100 years from now, we might have a scanner where you could just put that in a, a consumer tabletop scanner, scan the whole thing, and that's all the information you need. But by that time, all the disks would be rotted. So <laughs> Yeah, kinda, exactly. And it, it, mm-hmm. The other problem is, I mean, if, if you, it, it's quite easy to build a high-quality digital acquisition system. I mean, you know, companies make these. They cost thousands of euros, tens of thousands of dollars. But the problem is, if your average, you know, your your average guy working in his spare time can't afford to have one of these duplicator setups, we're not going to get anywhere because it, it requires on having mass appeal. So one of the nice things about the duplicator board is, that I, I think the I'm going to do this in euros, being a European, but I mean it's it's about 52 euros of of hardware to actually build that board, and then of course you you need this little FPGA board and a and a USB 3 board that slots onto it. But basically, you're talking about less than 200 bucks for a 40 million sample per second capture system that, that just performs like it performs really well even if i did design it myself <laughs> but i mean <laughs> but the thing is wow. it's it's supposed to work properly and cheaply those were the two aims to keep the cost down because otherwise you, you don't get anywhere it's it's just showing off otherwise you know it's it's okay to sort of show you ten thousand dollar capture setup but you don't have that laser disc that somebody else has so the idea is is to, to make it open and to allow people to, to join in and, you know, whatever their reason, they don't have to even know what Doomsday is. If they like Dragon's Lair or Space Ace or something like that, I mean, I don't care what they use it for as long as they use it. Because yeah. even even if the actual contents are not useful to the Doomsday project, the data that we're collecting back from those captures absolutely is. And the improvements that are made to the LD decode, you know, they come back to this project as well. So everything spins around. It's a beautiful example of mm-hmm. why open source projects work so well in these types of preservation efforts. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, this captures so much more data than the video capture card. Part of the reason, like, we were thinking this was going to be the one we are going to go forward with, but then we started capturing CAV disks, and we saw harmonics that I had never seen before from like later bits of a CAV disc, like they were bits that were bouncing back from 27 megahertz. Because mm-hmm. the laser was, it was there the whole time, but I could never see them. Hmm. So uh, I'd like to move on to software, but one, one last point is, uh, um, while, while making a completely new hardware solution to read discs is, uh, you know, possible, but too costly, one thing that I think would probably be feasible is to take a laser disc player that doesn't really work anymore. It doesn't output video, capacitors are going out, uh, and as long as you're able to get it to spin at the correct speed, you should be able to get that reading out, correct? Well, it's, it's, it's a little more complicated than that because the, the, the mechanisms inside the player that do the radial tracking, and um, if you imagine... The, the way to think about it, if you if you take one of these these laser discs, mm-hmm. here's one that I prepared earlier, and you have a laser pointing at it, and the disc is spinning at uh, you know thousands of RPM. What's actually happening is the disc is wobbling up and down like this, 
in in the vortex of air that's spinning around it mm -hmm. and the laser itself it has to move side to side up and down and focus all at the same time thousands of times a second just to track accurately across the surface of the disc so there's quite a lot of mechanics that you need in the player to work just to make the disc spin up and do anything mm -hmm. and really the, the good thing is is that it it frees you from having to worry about the comb filters and the time-based correction and, mm -hmm. and all the sort of post-processing that a Laserdisc does. And that's actually one of the interesting things when we compare Laserdisc players, because we're not comparing the image quality that a Laserdisc player produces. We're just looking at the optics and the mechanics of spinning the disc and tracking that laser across the surface. Right. And some discs that have quite bad picture output may actually have really, really good optics, and we don't have to care about that, the, the rest of it. So when, when you, when you um, actually start to, to, to go through and calibrate these players, the calibration you're really concerned about is the mechanical calibration of the player itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just meant if you have a player where the left channel audio doesn't work anymore, or oh, your yeah. on-screen display they, is broken, you're fine. Yeah, you, that's, that's still a contender and something that's useful. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I just don't want people running down the road pulling laser displays out of skips and then sending me support emails. <laughs> uh, so yeah, but it goes back to something you were talking about. When you plug things into LCDs, they get weird. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of things in laser displayers that were optimized for CRT displays, and they cause like ringing and weird artifacts when you plug them into an LCD. When we control the decoding we can make it so that it looks good on LCD, that it scales up to even a 4K monitor. And it's a bit blurry because the data is just not there, but it looks nice. Yeah, so uh, I'd like to move on to that now. First, what's the format that it's captured in? I'm assuming it's, is it a standard video format or is it just a bit for bit, um, something you guys it's created? It's a bit stream. It's okay. a bit stream, basically. So we, we started off with, um, originally it would capture in a, in a scaled, um, signed 16-bit capture. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is that you could take those captures and load them into Audacity or any sample editor and actually be able to see the RF, because at that point it was a little bit more difficult to do the decoding. Mm -hmm. But of course, as we, as we got more and more confident about that, there was less and less requirement for that. So instead, um, we came up with a 10-bit packed format, we call it, where basically the ADC is 10 bits, and as it hits the, the capture application on the PC, the PC will pack that. So it's a stream of 10-bit numbers coming out of it to get it as small as possible. Having said that, it's still 110 gigs per side of a CAV disk. So <laughs> we're, still, we're still talking a quarter of a terabyte per laser disk minimum. So, I mean, it's, it's a lot of data, 40 million samples per second. You, there's no, no easy way around it. And we, we haven't really found an easy way to compress that yet because... Uh, you it might not ever, like, because you want to no. preserve that as best as possible and then let well, compression happen afterwards. Mm. Warren did find a FLAC format. I just haven't... That FLAC works. I'm not, but I'm I haven't not convinced tried it, it does. <laughs> mm. I mean, the problem with compression is that the, the, unless, you, unless the compressor understands something about the RF signal itself, then the pattern looks like noise. Mm -hmm. And mathematics says you cannot compress noise. Mm -hmm. And that's the problem. So you, you need to have a compression algorithm that understands something about that signal. It's possible that, that FLAC or one of those types of packages could do it. But the problem is, is they're, they're designed for audio. Audio doesn't run at 40 megahertz sampling rates. Mm -hmm. Audio is a lot, lot slower. I mean, it's mm -hmm. an order of magnitude faster. So I, I don't think that those uh, compression, uh, compression algorithms are going to work that well. But I mean, you know, it, it, 
it's up to people. If they, if they really want to solve that problem, if they really want to sort of compress it, if we get someone who knows a lot about compression mathematics come along to the project and say, hey, I can make you a compression algorithm, they're going to get nothing but, you know, thank you. Yeah, because okay. that, that's, that's the way it will work. So I'm, I'm hoping that we get more and more experts in smaller and smaller bits, if you understand what I mean, to, to mm -hmm. help solve these problems. So once you have that bitstream file, then you load it into LD decode, correct? Yeah. So could you talk a bit about how that works and, uh, and what it's doing and just kind of walk through that process? Well, right now it's a Python notebook. It's going to be a regular program pretty soon that you can just load. But the idea is that a Laserdisc is literally, in, is literally composite video modulated into an RF signal. So it's basically standard definition TV in its purest form that you could get realistically that's not like expensive commercial grade equipment like if you look closely at the disc you can see the vertical sync patterns mm -hmm. if you look really closely you can even see where each line ends mm -hmm. because of the way the pits are change and then my software converts that back into its original form and the biggest trick though is dealing with the time base because it spins like a percent or like less than a percent off, but you can't just take it and dump it into lines. It would look really weird. Mm -hmm. And then the time-based correction goes in and it makes it a solid picture. And then I have some comb filter code that works good on NTSC, but is rubbish on PAL at the moment that makes the video like the chipmunk video. Yeah, so the, the video you're referencing is the one uh, I think Simon posted on Twitter, and yeah. I was blown away. I, I could not believe that came from a Laserdisc. We've decided to call him Ralph the RF Chickmunk now, <laughs> mm -hmm. because he's, he's, he's almost more famous than the rest of the project. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that LD Decode software, I'm assuming that obviously has to do some kind of deinterlacing and upscaling at the same time, right? Oh, no, that comes later. In fact, I don't deinterlace or upscale at all. That's the job of what you do when you have the RGB video. You can use standard tools like MEncoder. You can use whatever tools you like. So LD Decoder, you would load the raw bitstream in it, and what is the file that it spits out then? It spits out pure RGB video. No format, just 16-bit RGB raw and then FFmpeg can understand that okay. and turn it into whatever else you want. Out of curiosity, what's the file extension that spits it out as then? .rgb. And okay. then audio is a separate channel, so that's PCM. Okay. And then you would take that, and uh, what's the next step after you have that? And what's the, about the size of it? So uh, you're not talking about a terabyte at that point still, are you? Uh, no, it's smaller, but it's uncompressed standard def video. So it's still pretty big. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think one of the things to consider when you when you look at uh, Laserdisc games and systems like Doomsday is that the they quite often work on the fact that a Laserdisc player can freeze frame and, and just show you a, a single frame. So you have to be quite careful you don't then copy it into a format that does inter-frame inter uh, compression because otherwise it will blur the frames together. So you still need, if you want to represent the Laserdisc properly, you st even if you compress it, you can only compress it in within the frame, in, infra frame rather than into frame. So I mean, you still end up with fairly big files. You know, I completely yeah. forgot about that until you mentioned it. That's a, that's an excellent point. 
<laughs> yeah, but once you get to RGB and a PCM, everything after that's a solved problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. That's in the digital world. So what did you use on the chipmunk then, just for anybody that wants to, uh, to deal with that high-quality deinterlacing and upscaling? Oh, I didn't actually deinterlace it at all. So what did you put I... it through? <laughs> because that no, looks phenomenal. No, I had FFmpeg work in interlace mode. Okay. And you can do that with uh, MPEG-2 and H.264. Huh. So what was the... And then mm-hmm. what you saw in the video was Google processing that further. Interesting. Bad, badly. <laughs> yeah. I still thought it looked pretty incredible, especially Thank when you. Knowing, knowing the source that it came from. I would have never yeah. guessed that was a Laserdisc. I would have thought maybe it was a DVD, to be honest with you. So, yeah, maybe. well, it was one of Pioneer's like 1990 reference discs, so they really pushed the envelope of what you could put on a Laserdisc back then. And it's from near the end of the disc, which is where the best quality is with the CAV. Because with the CAV, at the very beginning, it's the reverse of a record player. Mm-hmm. The pits are smaller. So the laser has a higher, harder time distinguishing the pits. Mm-hmm. And the farther out you get, the clearer the signal is. So uh, have you tried, or is it even feasible to install something like this into a VCR? Um, yeah, you just, it's possible. Uh, we just haven't done it. Nobody's done it yet. Yeah, um, I think uh, somebody tried with a video capture card, but it didn't work well enough. Mm-hmm. Also, it would only capture video because audio is a separate channel on VCRs. It's a separate waveform. Mm-hmm. Something to do with tapes and bearing subchannels and... <laughs> <laughs> so I guess there would have to be the perfect solution then should a, a VCR version be uh, be released would be one that also has an audio input uh, and then maybe you could tap the raw audio signal from the, the player as well yeah it would basically be a second channel you might get away with an RTL SDR for that mm-hmm. maybe I think one of the interesting things there is that I mean despite what the source is, I mean, if you look at VHS and there's a few other formats out there, I mean, a lot of the, the work that needs to be done on those formats is quite comparable to, to the work that's been done on the Laserdisc formats. So, for example, you, you can modify the, the Doomsday Duplicator to pick up a different source. You can uh, pick up Composite PAL if you wanted to, if you altered the filter. But the thing is, is that the, the hard work of uh, building something that can capture at that sort of rate and then shoot that, uh, I mean, it's it's... It can achieve, I think, uh, what is it, 1,400 megabits of data per second between the card and the PC. And yeah. PCs aren't made to do real-time stuff. Mm-hmm. So you can use it as a general-purpose capture system if you modify the electronics. Everything's open source. Everything's open hardware. So you no longer have to do what Chad and I had to do, which is kind of, you know, start by inventing a spade and work our way upwards to dig the hole. Mm-hmm. You can actually take that and then apply it to whatever technology you're interested in. And, and from my perspective, I absolutely welcome that. I mean, it's, it's the whole point of making it open. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the LD decode. I mean, a lot of the things that Chad has done, like the the time-based correction, for example, which which works just superbly. I mean, it, it's possible to take that time-based corrector and then use that as part of a VHS processing chain. You just need to change the thing in front of it. So we're. I think what we've done is we've lowered the barrier for other people to go to other medias and do the same sort of trick that we're trying to do with Laserdisc. Because everything that we've done, you can find it, you can learn from it. You know, you can read it, you can look at the documentation that, that we've written for it. There's a, there's a lot of groundwork now 
where you don't have to do this huge hurdle that we had to get over just to just to get some decent captures in the first place. Mm. Yeah, and another interesting side effect that people can't who want to rip CDs really well are going to like is that this works for CDs too. I mean, we don't have the software finished yet. I forget who actually wrote it. Do you remember the name, Simon? The EFM decoding. Yeah, I want to give him credit. I'm trying to remember. Steve, I think his name was in the UK. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it turns out that Laserdisc Digital Sound is CD audio uh, and just mangled, filtered a bit by crazy Philips engineers. Mm -hmm. But once you get the EFM out, it's a pure CD. So the side effect of that is if you put a CD into a Laserdisc player that can play CDs and get the RF, you've got a perfect CD decoding that you can mathematically verify that you have the correct bits. So I'm going to ask a, a, a stupid layman's question here. Um, I have the ability to take a CD and put it into any number of the drives that I have in my computer or in, uh, in my box and do what I thought was a bit-for-bit digital copy nope. of audio. It's not, That's not, that is not no. the case? The, the, the reason why it's different is that the, the, EFM decoding, uh, the EFM encoding that's on the disc has a lot of error correction in there. So if, if the player skips bits, it's able to recreate the, um, the, the original um, data from those bits. So I think there's, what is it, 14 bits to every 8 bits of data on, on the disc? Yeah, and, it's unless an you actually, scrambling scheme. Unless you actually capture that, that um, EFM data itself, you're actually not getting what's on the disc. You're just getting what your player thinks is on the disc, and it may not be the same thing. So that explains why is. so many of my rips uh, skip as if I was listening to a <laughs> skipping CD. Yeah, well, I think it's more, of, it's more of a purist kind of thing. I mean, preservation is... is the, 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 the act of preservation, and this is my definition of it, is that you should be able to, to go into it and then back out of it. So one of the aims that I had with the Laserdisc preservation is I wanted to be able to make a copy of a Laserdisc that was good enough that when the technology becomes available, I can make a new Laserdisc from it. And it will be the same as the original. And it's the same when you talk about CDs. Unless you actually capture the FM from a CD, you can't recreate that original thing. You can get a close facsimile of it, but you haven't got a preserved copy of what was actually on that disc. So, I mean, there is definitely a case out there, and people crazy enough, trust me, to, to go to that length to actually preserve these discs correctly uh, so that there's always a copy of them. You know, um, so probably when in a say... few months... Oh, sorry, go ahead, for that. In a few months, I expect, you'll be able to do perfect CD rips with this. That's pretty incredible. And, you know, um, by the way, sorry for the Skype delay. I'm sorry for talking over you guys. But um, when, uh, you know, when people say the word preservation especially anybody that's worked with a museum or anything like that, you tend to think of the bigger picture stuff, which is incredibly important, by the way. Uh, you know, things like how your project started to begin with, or, you know, uh, being able to do, like you just said, take a CD, have a digital backup of it, and then recreate that same experience on a CD. I think that'll be pretty important, you know, in the future when people look back at these things. But people very often forget the personal side of preservation, and it's something that I didn't really put two and two together until I found a box of old um, camcorder tapes from when I was a kid. And I, you know, I scanned all of them in just using basic stuff because just seeing the memory was enough for me. I still, you know, I have millions of pictures of my family. But after I did that, I had a few people contact me 
Um, one of them said that their mother had passed uh, when they were just one or two years old, and they only have a few blurry pictures and wondered if I could take a VHS tape and get a really high-quality sample of it. And another time was somebody whose brother had passed away, and they had a CD of... Uh, one of the band recordings that they had done when they were in a band together as a kid, um, and the CD kept skipping. They couldn't get a good rip of it. So things like that, while on a big picture level might not make a difference, would, would make a massive difference in, on a smaller scale. So the fact that there's more people involved in preservation uh, makes me very happy because this stuff is important, and I really hope that both we, we could see all this stuff in a museum in 100 years, or when we plug into the Matrix and go visit it, whatever, <laughs> whatever you, it you is. You mean when, when our children do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, if you're still around in 100 years' time, I'll give you a prize. <laughs> <laughs> but it's not just for that. It, it, is, it is for people to preserve their own memories in a way that we should all be able to. You know, in the age of Facebook, where you can press a button and redownload all your pictures, sometimes easy to forget that uh, you know there, a lot of this stuff will absolutely cease to exist if we don't preserve it. Yeah, and I think one of the benefits of this being an, an open project, both from Chad's side and from mine, is that it, you know there, there isn't a cost associated with doing this. If you want to do it, you can just go ahead and do it. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you need to build some hardware and whatever, but there's, there's no one telling you that you, you have to use it for a particular purpose. I mean, if you want to, to make a backup of your Japanese laser disc collection that you could just watch on Netflix, yeah, go right ahead. I mean, you know, there's no reason why you shouldn't do that if that's what interests you. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that will drive this is that you'll get lots of people coming along. Most will just, you know, consume from the system. They'll, they'll use it to back up things. But some of them will look at it and say, hang on a second, that doesn't do what I want it to do because I have a particular thing that I want to do. Then they can just download all the source code off of GitHub. They can add to it. They can push it back to us. And everyone that's using that system will then benefit from it, which is why for complex preservation tasks like this, I mean, it's, it's a perfect system. Because what we want to do is we want to have mass appeal. And so, you know, I've always said to Chad, you know, pal, 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 pal is the only <laughs> thing I'm interested in. I, I don't care about anything else. So, you know, pal is better. Picture quality is nicer. Everything is much grander if it's all in pal. Let's just do pal. But, of course, you know, I, I realize that there are other people out there that want NTSC decoding as well. And that's fine. And one of the things that, that we're seeing now is that, you know, the things that we do on the NTSC side of the project will benefit the PAL side of the project automatically because a lot of the code base is now joined together. Mm -hmm. And it's the same with the capture device. I, I invented a capture device to capture PAL disk, but it just happens to do NTSC too. Mm -hmm. And as people add to this, you know, from their own personal perspectives of what they're trying to do, then we'll all benefit from that, that base of code, if you like, that will enable us to do smarter and smarter decoding. And the great thing is once you have a capture of a disk, you've always got a capture of a disk. Mm -hmm. As the decoding gets better and better, you can decode it a million times with a million different versions of software, you know, or ad infinitum into the future. So it really is a very, a very nice way of getting the job done, because even if you can't have what you want now, if you capture it, eventually some crazy person will come along, you know, like, like Chad himself, and write a whole bunch of software that just does a crazy thing. And you're like, wow, that's just what I needed. Hmm. And that's really what we're, we're aiming for, to kind of to like put it into the public domain and just let it organically grow by itself, you know, and allow people to do whatever they want with the, with the thing that's been made. That's awesome. Yeah, I mean, thanks to Simon and all the stuff you've done, this is a much bigger thing to me now than it was a few years ago. Like, it was a hobby. I was pretty much done with that at one point because I didn't see where else to go. And now it's like, 
wow, there's somebody with 20 terabytes of data waiting for me to write software. <laughs> I no, am no not pressure. <laughs> Yeah, no rush or anything. <laughs> I, I only send him about 20 pings a day asking how the PAL stuff's coming along. <laughs> well, for the first time, I have a source base that works on PAL and NTSC up until the point where there's very specific stuff and doing the time-based correction. Hmm. So um, to get the software, that's just the LD decode software is linked right from GitHub, right? Yeah. Um, but how how does one get the hardware? So you all the design files are there, but is there anybody making these and selling them? Simon. Yeah. Well, I have a few boards, <laughs> but you know the, the the main issue at the moment is it. I mean, it's quite specialist. So at the moment, so most of the people that are getting involved in the early stage have a knowledge of electronics, mm -hmm. and they're not that scared of using a soldering iron. And and really, with this type of very low volume electronics, the the easiest route is just to build it yourself. And I'm. I've provided on, on the website detailed instructions, not just the Gerber files for the PCB, but there's actually a pictorial step-by-step -step guide of you know what order to put the components on and what to look for and how to build it. So there's a, there's a lot of stuff in there for people that want to build them themselves. Um, then we've got guys like, uh, we have uh, the Dumping Union from the main project, mm -hmm. um, a chap in Canada who's been uh, talking to us and helping us out. And, um, you know, he's he's got a pick and place system, you know, he works for a company that does PCBs, so they're just going to churn out 25 of these. And it's going to be kind of like that, you know, people will pick it up, it's, it's completely free to use. If you happen to have the equipment, you can make one for yourself and 10 for your buddies. I mean, so that's the way it will work. Uh, from from my perspective, I mean, this isn't a profit-making enterprise. In fact, it's the, the absolute polar opposite <laughs> of a profit-making enterprise. Uh, you can ask my wife about that. But um, <laughs> You know, so there's. I, I don't really want to build, spend my time building boards and selling them to people. I'd rather be doing the engineering, and mm -hmm. and that's that's why I'm quite happy to sort of put everything out there. I put as much as much documentation and information around it. You know, you'll even find um, the instructions on what you need to click when you go to the PCB manufacturer's site, and you know how thick the board should be, and all the different settings that confuse everybody that's never really done this before. It's it's all on the Doomsday eighty six website, so yeah, you can just go there, you know, grab it all down. There's literally hundreds of pages of documentation there now. Well, I guarantee that as soon as this goes live, uh, I, I don't know how many people are going to watch it, but I guarantee. Everybody that wants one of these is going to watch it and then going to email me asking where they can buy one. <laughs> so well, this is your opportunity to help out an open hardware project. You see, you could have twenty of these boards made. Yeah, <laughs> and I'll sell, to, uh... sell them for thousands of dollars. <laughs> no, 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 no. I would, uh, I will absolutely talk to people. Maybe I could talk to the person in Canada who's already made a few, um, and maybe I could, by the time this airs, have a, a page up for a pre-order or, or at least an interest check, so there's no pressure on things. Um, but yeah, I would like to help and I would especially like to help somebody who, who just gets their time paid for. Cause you know, that is something that is, if somebody's going to take the time to sell package ship, you know, they should make a few bucks off the top, but no, not a thousand dollars. Absolutely not. No, no, ju just a fair markup to compensate for broken and lost boards and time spent. But yeah, I would love to, to put, um, I would love to link all everybody together cause uh, you know, I, I know so many people who have spent so much time in capture and uh, this, uh, well, how do I put this nicely? While, while this is amazing and the better choice, it also kind of invalidates a lot of the capture that they've already done. <laughs> so they'll probably mm. go back and recapture a lot of their stuff now that there's a much higher quality way to do it. They'll be happy to do it, don't worry. <laughs> and, if, and if they're not, 
Don't email me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as funny as that sounds, most people will be thrilled to do it because when I said I found my uh, my camcorder tapes, I uh, when I when I did it, I was working from home and um, I, I set up the old setup I had back in the early two thousands because it was great for four eighty i, and I forgot to change a bitrate setting. So when I finally blew, it, you know, I was working from home. I'm shoving a tape in, hitting play, hitting record, doing my work, coming back. I wasn't really paying attention, and I captured all of that footage at the wrong resolution and wrong bitrate. So I ended up having to go back and recapture all of it in, in true 480i. And while I was laughing at myself for wasting those hours of work, I was happy to do it. So I guarantee that the other people who have something very important to them would, would be thrilled that there's a better option now. Yeah, and the, the response that we've had from the people, I mean, it's like uh, you can look into our IRC channel that we have on Freenode, uh, hash, hashtag Doomsday86, and there's a lot of guys in there that have, that have captured stuff before and, you know, got their, their preservation in order, and they're all just setting up their laser displays, calibrating them all again and getting ready to, to roll to do it a second time because, you know, this, this is... I'm not going to say it's going to be the, the be-all and end-all of preserving laser discs, but really it's it's the best shot that we have right now given the time constraints that we have to back these discs up. And there doesn't seem to be any negativity towards that. It's all positive, you know. Finally, I can get a decent capture. Yeah. And that's all the response that I'm seeing. Yeah, absolutely. So um, what, uh, if you don't mind me asking, what do you guys do for a living that you're able to do such absolutely crazy high-end specialty stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I work well, at an embedded software company, Green Hills, in, in Santa Barbara. Mm -hmm. yeah, I actually work in technical sales. So I'm, I'm, I'm not even an electronics engineer. It's just a hobby for me. Uh -huh. So, I mean, the, soft, the software and the electronics is uh, it's more of a sort of historical hobby. I've been doing it since I was a kid. Hmm. Well, it makes sense, though. Technical sales, uh, I did that for quite a few years. And people, they hear the word sales and they assume you're out golfing with, uh, with other nerds. They don't seem to realize how in-depth that is. You need a full... You mean, you mean your job wasn't golfing with all the other nerds? Mine is. <laughs> <laughs> No, mine, uh, I, I wish. <laughs> yeah, my, my job for six years included knowing as much as I can about every piece of the puzzle that was feasibly possible. So I, yeah. And being able to talk to each people who generally hate each other. <laughs> so, you know, that, 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 that sounds like the job description, yes. Yeah. You, obviously, you obviously have some knowledge of what it is I do every day. <laughs> <laughs> I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I think if, uh, if I have to stop doing the website, that's what I would love to go back doing because such a, an interesting variety of both people and electronics that you get to work with. So that, that makes sense, actually, as to why you would stumble upon a, a project like this because you'd be able to have the knowledge to do a lot of it yourself uh, and be able to, uh, to find the people like Chad that would be willing to help and, uh, and could, do the, could do the other side of it. So that's awesome. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I will put the links of all of uh, every everything that you need uh, in both the, the post and the, the YouTube description. So, uh, you know, the links to both the projects, you guys on Twitter, uh, anything else that you feel that I, I should be linking to. Um, and I guess uh, uh, the only questions I have left at the moment are, uh, is there uh, anything that I forgot that you would like to tell about the project? And do you have anything coming next that you would like to talk about? Or is this really the main focus as it probably should be? I think that's going to be slightly different for, for Chad as it is for me. I mean, from let me do the doomsday perspective. I, I spoke a little bit about the, the, the guys from the dumping union. Mm -hmm. One of the things that, the, that they've just done for the project is that they actually donated this lovely uh, D10 Nano to the project. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of this is uh, this actually has a HDMI output on it and, and some pretty high-speed processing. 
And one of the things that we're going to start to try to do now is to actually make a hardware emulation system that you can load the, the RF captures up to, and it will act like a laser displayer. And the reason for using an FPGA is to actually do the video mixing and the gen locking as well, so you can plug the original BBC Master into it, and then you'll get the HDMI output with all the laser discs mixed over the computer input. So you can actually then actually run a doomsday system on this. And probably a few games too, because hey, <laughs> that that is incredible. Because also the DE10 Nano has the uh, I/O boards that you could add analog output as well. So if you wanted 480p component, you could watch a laserdisc in progressive scan on a 480p CRT monitor and still get the best of that side of things as well. Yeah, well, actually, it's not hard to convert HDMI to 480i and P component out. You can do that with the Raspberry Pi easily. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a yeah. few different methods of doing it. I'm just saying you can have a native solution to plug in. Yeah. So that's uh, that's pretty cool. The idea is, is the idea of the concept is, I mean, there's not a single line of code written yet, so uh, <laughs> it's going to be a little while before we get there. Mm -hmm. But you, you, you know, you have to start somewhere. The idea is to sort of like build it up as a generic laserdisc emulation system, primarily for emulating the doomsday side of things, because that's that's my sphere of interest. Mm -hmm. But of course. The, the the doomsday laser displayer is so unbelievably complex in comparison to a normal laser displayer that by the time you've done that, uh, as long as you put SMNTSC stuff in there, you've pretty much got all the other laser displayers too. So I mean, we'll probably start off by taking a fully decoded video and then you know playing back the fully decoded video. The the target for me eventually is to be able to take a raw RF capture mm -hmm. load that onto the board and play it like it was a real laser disc with dropouts and all the imperfections and everything because that's what i love i mean I, I want it to look smell and feel like a an original system but of course you can then flip a switch and you move into chad mode where it suddenly becomes all about the mathematics and the time-based correction being perfect mm -hmm. you know and, and, you, and you see the best possible picture and you should be able to choose between those two things and i'd like to have just like the duplicator is a block of hardware that does that trick I'd like to have a block of hardware that does the, the, the other end of that so you can capture and then you can play back and, and that will actually build a full working doomsday system. You know, it's funny because you just, you just touched upon something that's a, a part of my daily life and there's always one asshole friend that has to ruin it at the end because I can't wait to tell, uh, you know, my, my cousin Scott's huge into this stuff too. And I can't wait to tell him, yeah, you know, when we hook this up, we'll be able to get, you know, like a terabyte copy of the laser player. And once we get it, we could build this thing and then we could put it back and we could choose to watch it on the original or not. And there's always going to be somebody that goes, so why didn't you just play it on, the, on a TV? <laughs> Why don't you just <laughs> But yeah, we all get it. We understand what we're doing. So uh, yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. And something to look forward to as well. I was saying, in this case, though, in 10, 15 years' time, you won't have the disc to play on a TV. So it's a bit of a moot point. You, you're going to have to go down this route because the discs just aren't going to work anymore. This will be the only way to experience laser discs mm -hmm. in, in a few years' time. Well, especially with PDO discs, I think... The better made discs have a few decades left. Mm -hmm. They don't have any signs of degradation yet. It's a rare example of poor British engineering. Usually it's best in the world. <laughs> <laughs> if you believe that, you'll believe anything. <laughs> How about you, Chad? What, uh, did I miss anything? And is there anything that, uh, that you'll have coming up soon? Uh, not particularly, no. I've been pretty busy with other stuff lately. So, I mean, I was hoping to have the program at a bit further along than I did when we had this talk, but it's a few weeks out from having a little program you can feed things into, and you ask for frames like 40,000 to 42,000, and it spits them out at a reasonable speed, which it's not going to do now. 
Okay. Well, that's pretty awesome. Um, Yeah, there's a lot of refinement left, basically. And then integrating the digital sound. Yeah. Because as I said, there are some implications there outside of Laserdiscs that some people are going to be interested in. Mm -hmm. The CD stuff. and uh, Right now, when you said implement... But they could still get sound now. It just gets spit out as a different Yeah, it's from the analog channel. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, So... So I guess maybe this is another dumb question, but how is sound different between different laser discs? So obviously there's some with just the left and right audio, and that mm-hmm. that would be analog recorded on there. Yeah. But aren't there mm-hmm. uh, higher end soundtracks available on some of these? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, unfortunately the specs for AC3 don't exist enough to decode it. Okay. It was only ever done by one pioneer chip that doesn't have any good documentation on how it actually works. So we've got an idea of the theory, but we need someone who's really good with manipulating error correction to figure out what that error correction is. Okay, and so that's another goal that uh, that maybe somebody listening could help out at is trying to get the, yeah. the digital rip of the audio from the Laserdisc. Yeah, that's for AC3. That's for later 90s discs. Mm-hmm. Most digital sound discs are regular CD audio. Okay. So that is definitely a solvable problem. We know, I mean, that is so well documented. Yeah, and then the good thing to remember here is that once you've captured the laser disc, whether you can understand or decode the information on that disc is, is not important. The capture system will capture everything that is on that disc, even if you don't know it's there. So, I mean, as time goes on and we look at these different formats and we learn more about them, and, you know, the AC3 is a good example, the AC3 data is in those captures. We just can't get at it at the moment. But it doesn't mean it's going to go away, you know. It's, it's there oh, for okay. someone to look at. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, I was a little confused on that. So if you do a good capture right now using using the device um, and you run it through LD decode, if there's new things found and new ways to decode, you don't need to recapture. You still have no, that no, original no. capture. Yeah, you just That's you can decode it again and again. So as people get smarter and they understand these formats, I mean, Doomsday has um, has data in the EFM tracks, for example, that the system uses to, to load the programs that it runs. All of the programs are actually in the EFM data on the disk. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we're going to need a way of decoding that and pulling that data out as well so we can use that. And there will be other... There's Laserdisc games out there. Someone was calling, telling me about um, Star Rider, I think it was called, where in the first couple of lines of NTSC, a data about the positional information that your little motorbike has to be in before it crashes into the mountains. And it's kind of encoded into the video itself, so it's almost impossible to emulate. Mm-hmm. But, of course, this system means that if you have a specialist thing like that, you can put something extra into the LD decode, pull that information out and put it mm-hmm. in a format you can use. So even if there's very, very specialist Laserdisc games, and there are quite a few examples of these, you'll be able to, you, you've got the data. It's just a case of writing the software to be able to read and understand that data. But the data is there because you've captured the raw RF. So you have a, effectively an optical image of the disk mm-hmm. and everything yeah, on it. You get every channel on the disk. You get what's in the vertical interval, like the test signals. You get every kind of audio on the disk. Like, originally... You've got to remember that Laserdisc was standardized in the late 70s when you couldn't do digital stuff very well at all. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I'm even more excited now than I was before we did this interview. I was thrilled about this, in case you couldn't tell by my posts on the website, <laughs> but uh, now I'm even more excited. Uh, and I will talk to somebody, uh, maybe you could make the introduction to the person in Canada about making a few extras, 
get these in the hands of people that I know will use it and provide, at the very <laughs> least, provide feedback. Um, some might even contribute as well. Uh, I'm going to have to find, I have a, a few, access to a few players, so I'll, hopefully one of them will be good enough and compatible. But this is fun and exciting stuff, and I'm so grateful that there's people out there that are doing things and sharing it. So thank you. Dan, no jumping back a little bit, the cool thing about Laserdisc was back until the mid-90s, this was the only thing that could put 54,000 frames of video, well, 108 if you count both sides, onto a disc that you could mass produce and send to people. Mm -hmm. So you've got all these specialty discs that have images and training stuff that would be trivial to do on a website or YouTube these days, but there's no other way to do it then. Mm -hmm. And since there's no LaserDisc, uh, LaserDisc drives for a computer, this is the only way to get a true backup of all of that info. Yeah. Very cool. Well, uh, I hope maybe in a few months I could do a follow-up interview with you guys after I've done a rip or two. And, um, uh, you know, it, uh, I'll put more links down below. But at the very least, I'd like to stay in touch and, and do another one of these <laughs> at some point in the future just uh, to update everybody. And maybe we could even get a LaserDisc game running and have an example in the, within the next year or something. So, Ooh, that'd be great. <laughs> yep. Well, thanks very much for your time, and I will definitely keep in touch. Right, You're very welcome. You.